Welcome to Live Boldly with Sarah Chilton Kranz, a survivor, thriver, adventurer, and believer in all things possible. My mission is to guide others to live their life boldly, regardless of circumstances. I believe we all have the power to overcome and lead joy-filled, happy lives. Recorded from the trail or in my office, I share inspiring stories from everyday people because we all deserve to be heard. You will also hear from handpicked professionals ready to guide you beside me. Are you ready? Let's do this. Hi, friends. Welcome to another episode of Live Boldly with Sarah Shelton Kranz. Today I have on Noah Shaw, and before I even dive into who he is, I want to read a short excerpt from his new book, Stop Thinking Thoughts That Scare You, a selfless help guide of practical tools to eliminate fear and anxiety and live a life of abundance. It reads, I should be dead. I've had people try to kill me many times. I've been shot at with bullets just barely grazing my ear. I've been stabbed in the stomach and have a long scar to show for it. I've had a couple of guys try to throw me off the roof of a effing building. I've tried to kill myself numerous times. I've even walked away from a car wreck that no one else survived, but I'm still here. So I had this interview with Noah and I was blown away. He is an incredible, incredible man who has overcome so much in his life and is now giving back to others. Before I introduce him and talk to you a little bit more about him, I want to remind you that we have retreats coming up in the Grand Canyon, and we even added one into 2022, um, the Alaska Retreat. It sold out, 2021 sold out in one and a half weeks, I believe, and so we decided to add a July of 2022 for all of you. Our Grand Canyon Retreats have been selling out Um, We have October of 2021, it's co-ed. We also have February and April of 2022. If this is something that is of interest to you, if it's something that you've been wanting to do, if your heart's been calling, if you've been desiring this in your life, this ability to transform your life, have a more deep understanding of who you are, to heal in nature, to turn the phone off, to turn off society, and just to really take a break from what's happening around us so that you can go into who we are as humans. If you are ready for that next step, then please reach out to me, sarah at sarahsheltoncrans.com. You can go into my website, sarahsheltoncrans.com, and just really look into the retreats that I offer. You can also schedule a discovery call with me through my website, and I'd be more than happy to sit down with you and decide with you if this is something that is truly the calling in your life right now. I am really excited about the nature healing that has been happening with all of my clients. I've been so excited about watching their transformation, and it is a beautiful sight to see. So if you are, if this is something that's calling to you, please reach out and let's see if it, if it is the right fit for you right now. Um, so let's talk about Noah Shaw. Noah Shaw is a certified life coach who guides his clients to become better versions of themselves by helping them identify and understand their purpose and achieve what they want in life. Whether you were searching for more meaning or fulfillment in your personal life and relationships, or seeking to establish the confidence and accountability to realize your business, career, and leadership goals, Noah can help you chart your path and develop the tools you will need to grow. With over 20 years of experience working in addiction treatment and helping clients rebuild their lives in the aftermath of trauma, Noah specializes in helping guide his clients from the depths of darkness into a life filled with beauty and light. So this conversation got deep 
like they don't all, I mean, come on. Um, grab your journal. If you can take this outside and take notes, I would suggest that you do so. Um, I found myself in a few tears as I was doing this, uh, this um, particular episode. And so it touched my heart and soul, and I truly hope that it touches yours as well. Please share this with your friends. Please put it into social media, tag me, I will reshare. Please also go in and um, subscribe to my podcast, rate and review, and let's get this out there into other listeners' uh, hands as well. We are all ripples for one another, and I know that um, this episode impacted me, and I truly hope it impacts you as much as it did my own heart and soul. I love you, and thank you for being here. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Live Holy Podcast. I have on Noah Shaw. Um, I am so stoked to have you here. Um, you know, we were supposed to meet, I think, last week or two weeks ago. And I was, and then we had to push it, which is totally cool. It meant that I had to sit there for another week and hold off and wait before we really dove in, which that was the hard part for me. Cause like your story, and I always talk about this story is what, where people connect. This is where we understand more deeply about humanity, about ourselves, about one another. We are mere images. Um, you are a fascinating freaking human being. So I want to dive straight into your story and how you landed here with me right now at this moment to be able to share. So Noah, thank you for having, yes, thank you for being uh, on. Thank you for inviting me on. I'm very honored and privileged. Yeah. I've got a, I've got a lot of love. You've got a, I mean, this is our first time meeting and we're seeing each other via Zoom and you've got a really uh, beautiful you're very beautiful to begin with, but you also have a great energy about you. Just you've got a cool arm party going on with your jewelry. <laughs> and I love you. a good an arm. arm party. I, love a good, I love a good arm party and a fucking cool woman. I don't know. <laughs> I'm a amazing. sucker for these things. Like, yeah, you got to have a good arm party. That's know? amazing. Um, oh my god, I, I am so taking that now. I have an arm party on one hand, and I've got a tattoo that says "forgive" on the other. So there you go. Um, and you're, just, and you're full of them, which I love. And I usually, I usually have an arm party, but I had to go and get a medical test last week so you have to take everything off so uh, i usually, <laughs> usually have my my fake cartier my, my real real rolex and a fake cartier bracelet so <laughs> i like i'm a libra so i like balance well and i'm a leo and so there you go i oh, charge full head full, full straight ahead so full straight ahead <laughs> straight ahead and we and we cat and we libras catch you when you fall <laughs> you're once, you're, once you're exhausted you come curl up for a cuddle with a libra you're exactly like, I need right. a, every lion needs a rest. Every lion needs a rest. And I, I, okay. Like this right here, okay. this was like, this was like a dive in. Are we, are we done? Are we done? Did we, <laughs> did we done. just become best friends? We have become best friends. I got Let's just drop the, the mic seat. and go hike. <laughs> All right. Drop the mic. Gotta make a t-shirt. Um, oh God. So tell us about you. Tell us about tell your us about story. Your story is like phenomenal. Where did you hear my story? What part um, of it have you heard? So I I heard your story through the person that connected us, and then I dove a little yeah. bit into you. And, okay. uh, and right. so uh, yeah. I'll give you the I'll give you the the shortest version possible. Um, I was born and raised in the what's called the tri-state area. So I was raised I was made in New York, but I was born in New Jersey, raised in New York, New Jersey, Connecticut, three states. 
three states, nine schools, 12 years before I graduated high school. Um, I started drinking and doing drugs when I was 10 years old. And that was almost every drug because that was like that 70s show era. It was 1973. And um, I had a friend, a best friend, Vinny. And if you live in the New York area, you legally have to have a best friend, Vinny. Um, so he was assigned to me when I was 14, <laughs> young. And he had two older brothers and they thought it was funny to give the 10-year-old drugs and see what would happen. And I had already developed this thing, this core belief that I wasn't worthy. I had said by 10 years old, by being the new kid all the time, by constantly being a new kid, like so many times at a very, at very impressionable ages, I came into every situation that was new thinking, I have to earn people's friendship. I have to prove to you who I am. This was nothing that I knew at the time. This is all retrospect, you know, hindsight 2020. But I realized like they were going to be like, hey, Noah, you want to try this? I'd be like, sure I would. Because I didn't want to be a pussy. I didn't want to be like, you know, any of the bad words they used to use back then. Those were now words that we don't use anymore. But I wanted to have that sense of bravado. And I had a I had a very reckless sense of bravado. When I talk about this in my book, when I was about, I think I was about four or five years old, um, I had a very near I had a near-death experience where a snowplow was coming down the hill and I was stuck in the snow. My parents were about 20 feet away, 20, 30 feet away, sitting on a on our front lawn and they couldn't act fast enough the snowplow was coming at me the blade was coming at me i could see the driver's eyes he was terrified and he was stomping on the brakes and the blade of the snowplow after it hit me with snow it went it missed my head by a fraction of an inch mm. and i'm you know five years old four years old you know there's nothing would have just split my head open i would have been dead instantly so i had that experience and it's been ingrained in my life i could if i knew how to draw I could draw it because I remember it so vividly. So that you combine that lack of death, lack, no fear of death ever in my life, never scared of it, never worried about it, nothing. Combine that with low self-esteem and you've got a perfect recipe for bravado mm -hmm. and the desire to earn people and you want them to like you. You know, I started off when I was a little kid, when I was in fourth grade, we moved to another place. I was on my way to school one, you know, first day of school. I saw a candy store. I walked in. I picked up like as much like penny candy and nickel candy as I could, this big, huge bag. And I brought that to school and like, hey, this is Noah the new kid, but hey, I'm Noah, but I've got candy. And everybody's like, oh my God, you're cool. You're, we like you. And I was accepted because I, you know, I had candy and that I was buying friendship. I was buying any iota of sense of self-worth I could because my self-esteem was so incredibly low. And I, you know, I'm a member, I'm, I'm not, I'm not anonymous. I'm a member of Alcoholics Anonymous and people often talk about, oh, they had their first drink and they felt complete and they felt warm and fuzzy. And I always say it this way, when I drank and I did drugs, as long as I drank and I did drugs and I did them for a really long time and I did them very, very vociferously. Um, I didn't feel good. I just didn't like myself a little bit less. Oh, yes. The self-loathing, the self-hatred just numbed that voice just a little bit. Yeah. It never extinguished it. And the more drinking and the more drugs and the worse my life got until I was in and out of rehabs. And I was I was I went from that from a 10-year-old who tried everything, you know, one summer 
to by the time I was 15 years old, I was a massive cocaine dealer in New York City, dealing cocaine by the kilos all around the tri-state area, as well as going to Studio 54 every night and selling tens of thousands of dollars worth of cocaine there. Still hated myself. Had all the money, had the girls, had the models, had the had the you know the townhouse in New York, like not the townhouse, I had a hotel room on full-time rent with models living in it and myself living in it when I wasn't, and I was going to high school. I was leaving Studio 54 and going to homeroom. You know, I had this like crazy dichotomy and I had this life that was insane. And I was an insane person. And it was that grasping for more. And I always thought more would help and more never helped. Yeah. Did a bunch of did, did a bunch of rehabs and listen, there were uh, just to very quickly try to like get this all with us. So we're not here for three hours. I've had multiple attempts on my life. I've had contracts out of my life by organized crime and by disorganized crime. I've been shot at. I've been stabbed. I've had people hold me over the side of buildings and things like that, trying to kill me. I've been saved by other people. Um, I've walked away from probably six or seven car accidents alive with like a, with a Snoopy bandage on my head or like a cut finger that the cops would look at me and be like, we know you're drunk, but we don't even know how you're alive. You know, car wrecks that were like the, uh, the, the dashboard was, you know, level with my face and the front tire was against my knee. Like it was, it was impossible. It would pry me out with the jaws of death and I would, I wouldn't have a scratch on me, just a little glass cut. Mm -hmm. So I've tried to kill myself three times, three full suicide attempts. And I was such a miserable human being to myself. And I caused so much pain in my life that one day, and there's a long story, but we'll cut to the chase. I grew up in a, the most loving household you can ever imagine. So people are like, oh, I had this broken household, everything. No, I grew up in like, I, in high school, my friends who were going through the broken families and the divorces used to be like, hey, can we come stay at your house? My mother would be like, oh, of course. We had like, I had like six of my high school friends living at my house, all who had keys copies of the keys all who were like sitting around dinner when i came home for dinner my mother was feeding everybody they were like the most loving kind people and still are to this day and then i got to a point and i made a phone call I, I started drinking on a monday in utah salt lake city and i woke up and it was i found out through calling the front desk i was in a hotel room in chicago with no memory of how i got there wow and I'd been in a full blackout for a week. Um, and there was a girl laying in bed and there were bottles everywhere. I'd been part this girl would she finally woke up, said I would just been partying for like a week solid, like every bar in Chicago, buying rounds for the house and like throwing keg parties in the part in the hotel room and like bribing bellboys and stuff like that. And they eventually kicked me out of the room about two hours later. And I got on a cell phone, I got on a payphone and I called my dad, collect, of course, because I'm a piece of shit. And I had nothing. And I said, Dad, I'm gonna kill myself. And my father, who loves me beyond words, said, Noah, if that's what you got to do, that's what you got to do. And hung up on me. So I got to this place where my father and mother and my family thought the less painful thing for them and for me would be for me to be dead. Can I ask you something? Of course you can ask Not me. Not to like stop. I just shared all that. Well, not to, not to interrupt or to ask, I, I'm going to share something with you that I very rarely talk about, but first I want to ask you, what was it like for you to hear that from your parents, from your dad? 
shocking. Shocking. It was I, I at the at the I've often looked back and said it took them that long to cut the umbilical cord. Mm. Like I've been so attached to them. Yeah. Whether we've what's to what started as love as a child ended up as manipulation and greed and pain and suffering and I just couldn't couldn't get past me. I couldn't I couldn't was scared to be alone. Do you appreciate them saying that? Or was it one of those things where you were like, wow, it came to that. That's just awful. Well, I believe in God. I believe in a a God. I don't know what God is. Everybody, you know, everybody has something different to say about it. And I I always say was this mentor that I work with is a really beautiful human being. He goes, it doesn't matter what religion you are. All the mail gets forwarded. Mm -hmm. I believe Mm -hmm. in energy. I believe there's a presence of energy in this world that I don't understand. I believe that was that was my God doing for my father what he couldn't do for himself. Right. See, when I speak to people, I believe that like even in large groups and conversations, especially ones that are profound like this and are specific, we're trying to help people that I believe I speak, God speaks to you through me and he speaks to you. She speaks to me through you. You know, I always think conversations like this that are important are guided are sacred portals and oh. should be treated as such. That thousand percent. So you believe, and you you just said this. So you believe it was God speaking through your father for yeah. you to hear that message. Okay. Well, I'm going to share something that okay. I very rarely talk about. I said nearly the exact same words to my husband the night that I found out, and where he was literally standing on the balcony, where I was like, "If if this is what you got to do," and he was on he was tripping on drugs himself, and I don't I don't consciously think that he was thinking about taking his life but what i was witnessing was him taking his life over that period of time and it was one of the most harrowing things for me to witness but then also the one of the most harrowing things for me to actually look at him and say this is what you got to do i don't know what i don't know what else to do as your wife i don't know what else to do and it was, and I, of course, did not want him to take his life. And I, again, I don't think it was something where he was even consciously, I don't think he was consciously even aware. You were consciously aware of saying to your dad, this is what I'm going to do. He wasn't even consciously aware of what was happening because he was tripping out so much. But for me, it was just sitting there witnessing this moment in this man's life where, and in, in the dichotomy of two lives, that's what he was doing. And, and me not knowing about the dichotomy of his two lives. So it's, this is the first time I've actually really had this conversation with somebody where they've experienced those words on the other side. And that's why I'm asking you this, because I know that there's yesterday marked 12 years of one of my dear friends taking her life. And I know that there are a lot of parents that, and in family members and siblings where they've experienced this suicide's a horrible thing. And it's just, you know, and it's, it's sad. Um, And I cannot thank you enough for a being here and sharing all of this with me and everybody else because I think we got to better understand both sides of it, right? And to and to see somebody for the human being, the humanity that they are. So, wow. You know, the, the introduction of my book, literally, the very first words of my book are, "I should be dead." Yeah, those are the first four words of my book, in bold, highlighted, capitalized, everything. Yeah. And, you know, I should be, I'm not, and I am eternally grateful that I'm not, 
that none of my suicide attempts work and none of my recklessness killed me. Um, and listen, I had, I had a heart attack this summer out of nowhere. Didn't even know I was having a heart attack. Thought I was having a stomach problem. I mean, I've lived through so much. It's just, it's insane that I've just, I'm, there's a purpose for me here. And it's a major purpose for you. And that's, that's, and and for myself as well, being on this side of it, right? Like having Mm -hmm. just my love of my life going through this and, and we, every single person in this world has purpose of some sort. And so when you mentioned about that was God speaking through your husband, I believe it was the same for me. I believe it was God speaking through me as I didn't have the words, didn't even know what I was saying, but had to say this to this person who was standing in front of me that I love so deeply because I witnessed his pain and his suffering so deeply. And I didn't but, like, but and I'm going to put a butt in here. I want to throw this back at you as the same as my father. It wasn't about the pain that I was feeling or the pain that your husband was feeling. It's the pain that you were feeling. It was that it cut you so deep to the core and it made you so feel so helpless, or at least my father, what he's told me, he felt so helpless that he literally had no other avenue he'd done to turn to. He'd done everything. He'd been the amazing father. I mean, you're talking about a guy that grew up in the Bronx in the thirties and the forties. He grew up, he was slept in a bathtub. His sister slept in the couch. His other sister slept in a cot in his parents' house. Like they were poor. They were, they were, you know, lower, very lower income living in the tenements, you know, in the Bronx, living in the apartment buildings of the Bronx, New York, when everybody was first generation, he was a first generation American. And, you know, he brought himself up. He was born with a birth defect. He has no left hand. And even through that, like when it wasn't cool or it wasn't accepted, he changed our name to something very American sounding because it was very not American sounding. Like he'd done everything he could to make us have a good life. And he gave us this beautiful life and he gave us all these opportunities. And I had not only squandered that, but he could, he could, he worked so hard. And my mother as well, she's the rock of our family. You know, you're talking about somebody that before the pandemic at 82 years old, she's been dancing her entire life. She was teaching at 82 years old, teaching two to three dance classes a day, seven days a week at 82. These are workers, like these are hard workers and they couldn't, nothing they could do could help me. And they, that hurt them so deeply. Yeah. That's also you. Yeah. Well, and as a parent, I can't imagine. Um, I think, you know, for me being in a partnership and this is where, you know, we were so interwoven as best friends and as lovers and as, as co-parents that our energy speaking of energy, right? Like I could feel his pain at the same time that I was also feeling my own and not understanding the depth of his suffering yet. Cause I still didn't understand everything that he had been going through. But now that I've been able to pull all that back and have the deep conversations with people, which I recommend everybody does. Right. And to be able to see somebody with empathy and human nature and understanding and forgiveness and all of the things it's given me a much clearer, um, uh, vision or a much clearer understanding of what he was going through without also saying, I'll ever understand what you went through. Cause I won't, I just won't, but nobody will understand exactly what I went through. And so it's, um, those moments though, those one cri- that those critical moments can make all the difference can make all the difference. And I'm 
again, I'm so happy you're here. I'm so happy you're here. I'm so happy to be here. I'm so glad you're here, and I'm so glad your husband's here. Yeah, I am too. He's not, he's not I here. Mean, you he's know, alive. he is <clears throat> great, and I and I I it was it was it was horrifying witnessing all of that at the same time. And then you've got children in the next room sleeping. So, you know, it's like, wait, what? Um, so I thank you for that. Cause I, that's the first time that I've actually been able to share that and understand it from the other side as well. So that's what um, I do. Yeah. I'm an emotional, I'm an emotional can opener. <laughs> I am too, which is really I actually great. just made that up. And I like that a lot. I love that. <laughs> like you're making all dance party on the wrist. Like I- dance party, dance party's old, but the emotional can opener. Amazing. I like that. So that's the next book. Yep. There you go. So, and I'm sitting here writing notes as I'm talking to you too. Um, let's, let's keep diving in. So you, so you uh, have this moment with your father. Did you attempt to take your life at that time or what happened? I did not. You did no, not. I, uh, the only thing I had left in my wallet was an insurance card from when I worked for my father, you know, a couple of years before. And he had put me on the company insurance plan. And literally, that was all I had. I had that and a driver's license were my only two things. And I opened at at that phone book, at that phone booth, we used to have something called yellow pages, kids. (laughs) And they were big books of phone numbers that hung from cell cell phone, uh, telephones, pay phones. And I opened up to rehabs and I just picked one out. I flipped through the pages. I literally just put my finger on one. And I was like, do you take my insurance? And like, yes. I'm like, how do I get to you? I had nothing. I had the clothing on my back, like a pack of cigarettes and, you know, $1.35. And they were like, take this bus to this bus. And it cost me $1.35 to get there. And I checked in and I started my adventure in sobriety and I did terribly. Um, uh, I worked, it was a 30 day program there. They recommended I go to a 90 day program in Mississippi. I went there. It took me nine and a half months to get out of the 90 day program because I broke every rule constantly. Um, 90 day program. It took me nine and a half months to graduate and they, and that's without them knowing about those in Mississippi and backwards Mississippi. And that's without them knowing about all the drinking I was doing. So I was in rehab. I was drinking. I was breaking so many rules of just the rehab. At one point I was on verbal probation where I could not speak to anybody at the entire rehab and nobody could speak to me, including staff. I could only speak if it was a medical emergency to the nurse or doctor on duty, like middle of the woods, Mississippi sitting in a, they would make me go out, stand in the middle of a big old area in Mississippi and just rake, you know, hundred yards of hundred acres of, of land, just stand out there with a rake all day in the sun. Wow. And uh, I mean, it took me forever to get out of there. I, then they, they graduated me because everybody thought I was like, Oh my God, you did so great. Nobody knew that I'd gotten drunk two days before the graduation. They moved me onto a halfway house, what's called sober living now. Mm-hmm. Um, I went there. We got there on Christmas Eve. I'll never forget it because December 24th. And I was sitting in an A meeting and she walked through the door and she was so hot. And she was from Mississippi and she had this voice and she had this accent. <laughs> and I mean, she was smoking hot. And um, so I married her six weeks later. Um which was really great. It was really smart. I checked out of the rehab like three weeks later. And then three weeks after that, I married her because, you know, 
why not marry the why first not? girl you see who has already has two kids and is like, you know, I was 24 and she was 28, she had two kids and a BMW and she was a former big fashion model. And I'm like, of course I'm going to marry you because you're totally stable. And she had a, by the time I married her, she still only had a week sober and I drank a week after that. Wow. But I haven't had, but I haven't had a drink since. So, mm-hmm. um, that was February 28th, 1988. And, um, you know, we moved up to New Connecticut because my father had a company. He gave me a job. I started to put this life together. They were my parents were very excited about being like even step grandparents. Mm. And shockingly, the marriage did not last. I know it's a surprise to you that we're not still together all these years <laughs> later. I was going to ask you that after, now. after, well, after knowing sure. each other, after knowing each other for six full weeks. Um. <laughs> And we split up and I, we got separated and I got a new apartment and I had a moment, had a moment of grace in my new apartment. I remember this very clearly. I had an alarm clock, I had a pillow, I had a blanket, I had a laundry basket full of clothing and I had a lamp and that was all I had in my life. And I had an AA meeting guide and I decided at that moment I had this like bright light moment, like this moment of just knowing that's very hard to explain. Um, it was an intervention in my soul and my heart and my head and my mind. And I said, I'm done. So I'm done being the fuck up. I'm done being the black sheep. Now it's going to be even more of the black sheep. My family, everybody goes to college. Everybody stays married forever. My father proposed my mother on the first date, three days after he met her. Wow. He looked at her in a dance class and my friend that his, that his friend brought him to. And he said, who's the girl in the purple leotard? And my uncle Chick goes, I don't know who that is. He goes, I'm going to marry that girl. Met her on Wednesday, took her out Sunday, proposed to seven o'clock that night, married 90 days later. Like that's the family I come from. Right. My parents, my grandparents died with like 75 years of marriage. So now it was going to be the fuck up again. Now it's going to be black sheep again. I didn't go to college. I didn't get married. I lost my wife. Like, and I just had enough. And I have something that I've talked about for a lot of years and worked a lot of, with a lot of my clients. I talk about my new notebook theory. And that's what, when I was going to school, we used to have these like denim colored notebooks, these three ring binders. And every semester I would organize that. I would go to the store, take my mom and go to the store, get all the pens and pencils, get the little zipper pack, zip thing pack that, you know, put the racers and the pens and the markers. And I'd set all the sections, you know, social studies and math and algebra and like history. And I would get it all organized. But within a week that I didn't take any notes. I didn't go to any of the classes and I didn't like pay attention. I was busy messing around and screwing around and being the class clown. So, but every month, every semester, this is the story of my life. I had the best intentions. Mm. I wanted to succeed, but I had no idea how. I had no idea how to follow through. So I said, tonight, I was like, tonight I'm going to an AA meeting. I'm going to an AA meeting. And it was the first time ever I went without being told to go by a rehab. And I went to, went to my first rehab in 1983. I think it was very early. <clears throat> this is 1988. And I'm like, finally, like, okay, now it's enough. And I've still gone to a rehab since then. Um, but I just had to do it for myself. I had to try. I had to try doing something that I just didn't know how it was going to work out because I had such a history that I knew it wouldn't happen if I didn't go. Right. So I'd be drunk, 
or dead or trying to kill myself or on the phone with my dad again. And I just said, no. And I went late and I left early. I didn't talk to anybody. And over amount of time, I became very involved and went to a lot of meetings. And I met a man that changed my life and showed me how to live and how to be a man in this world. And it's been, it's good. Life is good. That's so let me ask you something. How many mentors or people that you looked up to, how many do you have in your life right now? Who are they? Mentors. Well, I've had, I've had, I talk about this in my book. I talk, I had a bunch of people who I thought were just cool people that I met. And when I look back, I realized that they were teachers mm. and mentors. Um, mentors right now, I just have one. And he's, his name is Luther Woods. He lives in Palm Beach, California. And he's not only is he sober for a very long time, he's been sober for 48 years and he's 83 years old, but he's also one of the wisest, uh, most amazing human beings I've ever connected to, just even on a, on a spiritual or just humanity level. I tell this, I tell this story all the time that I called him about, about six months ago. And he said, I'm on the phone with my friend Brian. Can I call you back afterwards? And he has a little southern accent, but he's a beautiful old, old man. He's a wonderful human being. And I said, sure. And he called me back later. He goes, so I asked him some questions. They were along a spiritual lines. And he goes, That's so funny. That's exactly what Brian was asking me about. He goes, we talked about it. He talks about it very this lovely, just wonderful human being that's so in touch with the power and the source of this world that he just it just emanates from him and you, everybody around the world knows him and he's very well known and he goes so by the way who's brian he goes oh my friend brian i've known brian forever about 15 20 years he goes you want to know what's interesting and i go what he goes you know what brian's job is and i was like no he goes brian's the assistant to the dalai lama <laughs> i was like let me get this right brian's is the, the personal assistant to the dalai lama he has all of those incredible monks with you know thousands of years of teachings, and he, when he needs spiritual advice, he's calling Luther in the desert, <laughs> and that's 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 who I'm connected to, and I'm only connected to him because I went to an AA meeting on Zoom during the pandemic, and I would have never known this man. So people complain about Zoom, complain all you want. I met one of the most important people in my life. Well, I think it's also what's really interesting. You bringing this up is that. We so many times, and this is where I get bugged with social media and, and all of the things, we think that we have to go to the, the, the top of the top of the top of the top of the top, who we see as or review as the top of the top. Like, you know what I mean? When in reality, the person who you can gain some of the most amazing spiritual advice from is the person to the right, to the left, to the front, to the back of you. And we don't sometimes take the time to actually have the conversations to to deepen and to understand what we can learn from those people. And um, so it's, that's <laughs> labels are labels. <laughs> like, that's my point. And like labels are labels, uh, no judgment. Like, it's just for me, it's what can I work? Where, where can a conversation go um, in whatever conversation I'm having? So I can learn a little bit more. One of my favorite things that people say that I find to be the least spiritual thing you can say is when people go, I'm not religious, I'm really spiritual. Yeah. By saying you're really spiritual, it's pretty much counterintuitive to the concept of spirituality. You know, I've I'm I'm 57 years old, I've written a book, I have a I have a lot of answers. You know what I have more of 
is questions. Yeah. Like I'm a searcher. I'm a yearner. I want to learn. I still want every day I'm learning and I'm asking things, whether that's from 83 year old Luther or the, or the 17 year old kid who's got two years sober, who hit me up yesterday and was like, Hey, can we go to dinner? And I was like, sure, man, let's grab some dinner, we grab tacos. And I'm just asking him about his life, mm-hmm. you know, because I want to learn because I didn't have a 17 year old life. I was, so, so I want to learn what that's like and help him have a better experience. So I want to be a student. I'm not, I'm not, I never fancy myself a teacher. People are like, you should do a Ted talk. And there's part of me that goes like, yeah, but I don't really want to. There's mm-hmm. something about that doesn't appeal to me. Mm-hmm. I, I will, I will just fast forward, dive back into the story for a second. So I got really sober. And then after 15 years of sobriety, I sort of let my meetings go. And I went back to my old life. And I opened up a weed delivery service in Los Angeles and did that for three and a half years and i smoked pot and i was out of the program and i got busted and i was facing 22 years in prison long story got out of that got assigned to rehab got a great weed lawyer never save on doctors lawyers or tattoo artists those are three things you should never save money on um this guy gets really lawyers tattoos and he's really cheap so doctors lawyers and tattoo artists don't save money <laughs> I always be like, well, is he expensive? That's good. So if you, somebody goes, everybody always asks me about tattoos because I'm covered in them. You can't see it on a podcast. I've got 200 and something. They're like, is he good? And I go, yeah, this guy's great. And they go, is he expensive? And I'm like, he ain't cheap. Like, you're going to put something on you for the rest of your fucking life. You really want to save money? Go just Google bad, cheap, cheap tattoos. You'll see. So anyway, anyway, yeah. I got, I end up in rehab again one last time. And I'm sitting in this meeting and I was assigned to go to it because I was facing a court case and everybody was facing a court case had to go to this meeting. It was a a program called criminals and gang members anonymous. It was started by a a triple life sentence convict in San Quentin named Richard Mejica. Mm. And he started this 12 step program for people who were addicted to crime and gang membership. And he got through the meeting and I I went to like one, maybe I went to another one. The the concept was how addicted were we to crime? How much did we love that rush of crime? How much did I fucking love dealing like, you know, 500 kilos and seeing like, you know, $10 million in the fucking room or in suitcases or in boats or whatever. Like that shit got me off. But then I had another moment. This is my moment of another, my my final moment of grace in my life where I had a sudden realization that between all the cocaine I dealt, between all the drugs that I dealt for decades, I'd caused so much pain in this world. I truly put so much pain and misery. How many people had OD'd on the coke I sold? The weed, weed. How many people had got strung on a crack? How many people missed children's birthday parties or rental or lost their family members like how much pain had i put in this world even through weed weed people spend all their fucking money and don't buy christmas presents on my birthday but like it's it, there's an addictive part some people get mad radically addicted to weed and i realized that that moment i had a, a click i was like okay this is it i said your job your singular singular purpose for the rest of your life is to attempt to put a dent and make up for all the pain you've brought in the world. So that's why I am the person I am today. That's why my purpose is to help people is to try to clean up 
that debt. And I never will. And I'll never do enough acts of kindness or goodness to ever make up to the brutality that I've brought to this world. But I will try, I will, till my last breath, I will try. Okay. I'm going to get a little teary-eyed right now. Okay. And I just want to thank you. Because um, the weekend that I found out about my husband's addictions and his drugs, and once I figured out one source of where he was getting his cocaine, I attempted to make a phone call to the dealer. And I was told, do not do it because you, it will not end pretty. And my whole thing as a wife and as a mother and as a partner was he doesn't even understand what I am going through because he's taking something. He's literally, understandably, my husband made the choice, right, to actually go down that road of using cocaine. I was also taking the choice of having my healthiest man in front of me because of not understanding that this was going on, right? And so... I remember sitting there thinking to myself, does this dealer even understand what I am going through because my husband has the means to, to actually get this drug, right? And it's just, it's such a, it's such a, it's such a, um, it's such a, a, there's just so many layers to this. It's a mind fuck. It's, it's a mind fuck. It's a mind fuck. And I get that there's choice by the person who is also taking it. And then it's also, if it's there and the availability to it and the fact that it was, it was being distributed to him in the back alley of my house. I mean, I'm sitting there like, dude, do you get it? My children are in this home and me needing to protect. But I'll tell you something. What you just did for me is the biggest gift by simply saying that because Quite frankly, I have no idea. Maybe it was you. I don't know. I mean, the way this world and universe and God works, I mean, I, I run across the, the shit that happens to me. I mean, like, literally, I have no idea. It doesn't matter, though. I, I haven't dealt Coke since the 80s. Well, then it's definitely not you. I, not my point is, my point is, is that you represent what you're saying to me right now. You are representing that, that. I'm sorry, right? That I have never gotten because I was also told in that moment, don't go there, Sarah, because that's like me. That's like me to actually have the conversation with somebody. Um, but thank you. Thank you. Also, that's all I got. Thank also, you. you know, we, we go, we go deeper and it's like, you know, we don't know why that person is selling cocaine. Why well, exactly. Exactly. You're we don't, know. we don't know who they are, what they their are. life was like, what what happened, what happened in their childhood. Because listen, we're all just we're we're all just taller children. Yep. We're all products of our childhood. That's like that's what that's what we are. We just are. Um yep. and so the sooner we realize that and the sooner we like respect that when people are angry or mean spirited or upset or whatever, they they're doing something we don't like, or it's drug dealer, like what led him to sneaking around people's back alleys to sell cocaine to like get, keep his life going. Right. You know, and he probably has kids. 
You know, like 100%. what brought what? How did his life stack up? So his like his his friends who all have jobs, and he deals drugs. So all these people have jobs and money, and this Hermosa Beach or Park City, I don't know, but everybody's got wealth. Yeah, in either place. Yeah, and he's like, I'm the dealer, and I've got to sneak around at night. Yeah, and w- w- nobody fucking respects me. Nobody likes me except if I have cocaine. I'm not hearing from anybody. Nobody's calling me on my fucking birthday. I'm yeah. just they're just calling me when they want more fucking drugs. And I think that's that all the- I'm fucking worth to it. Yeah. And this is the beauty of all of this and having these conversations is the fact that everybody has a story and we all have pain. I don't care who you are in this world. We've all experienced something that has led us to that next step. Right. And our, what is the most beautiful thing about having this conversation with you is the fact that you are, you are also seeing where you can use all of that in your past to create so much good in this world, which is so awesome. It's it's the only thing I it's again it's not it's not by choice it's my mission in life it's mm-hmm. what I have to I have I'm driven to do it and uh, I have I've always been a helper so when I was in high school everybody started calling me Uncle Noah out of nowhere because I was that figure that was like it felt like I was I was only like a I was a little a year older than everybody or nine months older than everybody but it just felt like I was more mature and I was because I was like doing things that they weren't going to dream of, but they would come to me for, even on a spiritual and emotional level, they would come, everybody would come to me for advice from the biggest, coolest guy in the fucking school to like, you know, the nerdiest person. They'd always come to me. And then I went to college in Texas. I ran away to Texas because there was a contract out of my life. There was no social media. I never introduced myself as uncle Noah. I never said a word. I was walking through my dorm the second day I was there. Somebody goes, hey, Uncle Noah, what's going on? I was like, how the fuck do they know my nickname is Uncle Noah? At this point, I'm doing a bunch of cocaine. I'm really paranoid. I'm like, "Why? how do you know that name? He goes, I don't know. I just called you it. I didn't never heard it before. I was like, all right. So that it was like, so that energy followed me. I was always that person. Some people, every people came to for advice, women and men, gay, straight, brown, black, yellow, orange, Asian, fucking purple, green, whatever. Didn't matter who you were. You were comfortable with me. And then I turned 30 years old and I was running a big nightclub that I designed and built. And I ran for Aerosmith in Boston and I was doing a cash out on one of my bartenders one night. She goes, okay, Papa, I'm all set. And I was like, Papa, why'd you call me Papa? She goes, I don't know. You're just a Papa. Mm. And everybody started, everybody started calling me Papa. And then again, I moved in 1997 to Los Angeles have another bar out there doing a fucking cash out again no social media no way anybody knows i don't introduce myself as papa bartender doing a checkout she goes okay papa i'm ready and i'm like so i'm just papa right i'm just that person so now you've taken i've taken this energy that's been within me my whole life and i've never really thought about it as like a power so, so so to speak i've just been like oh it's one of those quirky little things about my life then i've taken that now and i've realized that in my desire to heal the world and myself that i can take these this instinct and i can use it to help people and that's about 20 years ago no a little less than 20 years ago when i became a life coach and i just help people and i just i just reach out and i can i don't make a lot of money you know i can't like it's one of those quirky little things where i can't figure out it's what i want to do with my life but i can't figure out how to make it do it so i just 
do it. And I have, you know, clients that come and go. And I, I can't be like all these big life coaches on YouTubes and fucking Instagrams. I'm not killing it. I'm not driving the fucking, you know, the beautiful cars and shit. I just make, I just help a lot of people. And I do a lot of pro bono work. People are like, I just can't afford it. I'm like, okay, come on, let's just talk yeah. every week, you know, for like three, four months. So it's become my mission. And I think that the beautiful thing about this, and this is where <clears throat> I always say this too, is that, um, you know, money is energy. We know that, right? Like that's okay. And it's about the energy that you also, it's that giving and receiving, right? When you also witness other people being able to transform their life or transcend from where they're at. Um, it's such, for me, it's such a beautiful gift. I freaking love it. I mean, I know with my clients too, I can look at them and I can witness like those moments, those, those critical moments where it's, you just know, like, oh, they're having that realization or that clarity or that, you know, hit or whatever you want to call it. It's such a beautiful gift to witness. And it helps it. And it, I'm sure I would assume um, that with you too, I'd imagine that it also helps in your healing and keeps you going. It's amazing to be able yeah. to bear. I've heard this quote one time to bear witness to the transformation of a human soul is the greatest gift there is. Yep. And that I, I mean, that's what I, that's what I love seeing. I love seeing everything change. That is the truth. You know, it's just watch, watching somebody's life grow and, you know, getting notes back from clients from a couple of years ago or nine months ago. And they're like, Oh my God, this happened. And this happened. Thank you so much for putting me on this path. Like there's, there's, there's no, you know, listen, there's are some, I won't say there's no check that could be better. There are some fucking money. It could be better than that, but <laughs> it's a pretty, it's a, it's, it's a, it's a gift. That's that that's priceless all at the same time you know, because it, go ahead. Oh, sorry. No, well, I was just going to no, ask, go, go. Um, let me ask you where, who is the one person that believed so deeply in you? Give me that. Give me that one moment in time where it was like, this was my, I, I recently had a client on the trail tell me that my believing in her gave her the opportunity to truly, she, she was, she had to believe in herself. She's like, nobody's believed in me. So who is that person with you that has most believed in you or a moment where you're like, okay, this changed my life. So I started going to those A meetings after I had my new notebook theory and I started going late and I left early and didn't talk to anybody. Then the more comfortable I got, the more of a, my ego began playing. And I'd been in so many rehabs at that point that I could sound like a super sober guy. I knew all the words to AA and I knew all the good things to say and all the catchphrases and I knew all the history and I'd read the big book. So I could, I was a chameleon when I was younger because I was, I would deal drugs. Like I was, you know, working for guys that were Italian and those guys couldn't deal with black people or Spanish people or Asian people, uh, you know, any, any, any other genre of human being, any other race. So I was like an intermediary because I could talk to the Haitians and I could talk to the Jamaicans. I could talk to the Japanese and the Koreans and the Chinese and the Puerto Ricans and the Dominicans and everybody. So I could, I could chameleon myself to be whatever you wanted. So at that point, my chameleon skills were sound like a super sober guy. Sound like the fucking most sober guy ever, you know, bang chicks and that'd be great. It'd be fun. And, um, I was sitting in a meeting one night and I shared, and I said, you know, I had this really hard time. I was at the mall today. Malls were a thing back then. And, uh, Malls were a thing back then. <laughs> back then in the late eighties. Um, and 
I said, you know, I felt like drinking, but I got through it. You know, I very profound. I wanted people to like feel me and like sympathize, but then I could rise above and show them my strength, how great I was. And I thought I had a fucking phenomenal speech, a phenomenal share. It was amazing. I was giving my, I would give myself an A plus plus. And this fucking guy in front of me, he turns around, he puts his hand in the looks over his shoulders, looks like Bluto from Popeye. The black hair, big beard, anchor tattoo on one arm, dragon tattoo on the other, and he goes. You're an alcoholic. That's what we do is we want to drink. It's no big deal. And turns back around. And I was fuming. I was like, does he know who I am? I'm thinking to myself, like, this guy just disrespected me like this. Does he know who I am? Does he understand how he just violated me? And he's got to pay for this? This guy's like 6'3", 6'5", 250 pounds, like solid brick of a human being. Uh, but I don't care. I don't see that. I see somebody that's now disrespected me. Mm -hmm. So we had a little cigarette break in the meeting about halfway through. And there was a horseshoe entrance to the hospital where we were having a meeting. We walked out there and we're cigarettes. And he's on one side and I'm on the other. And I'm smoking my cigarette. I'm just by myself, just chilling, talking to a couple of guys. And I see him start walking towards me. And I did what I, at that point, I was very comfortable with violence. I grew up fighting like every day. So I slipped off my rings, I slipped off my watch, I pulled off my necklace, put everything in my pocket, cocked my right foot back, drew my right hand down below. I would bunch, I would bunch, I would always do the same thing. I would bunch my hand, my right hand into a fist. I would have my left hand open, but I would bunch my hand into a fist before I punched somebody because I, but I would hide it behind my leg. So it didn't look like I was about to punch you. Mm -hmm. I, I never took the first punch. And this guy came at me and he got within about a foot of me and he opened his arms and I cocked my wrist by pulled, pulled back to punch him. And he just swallowed me in this hug. And he was like, it's going to be okay, dude. And he's like, what's your name? I'm like, I'm Noah. He goes, I'm Johnny. It's going to be okay. And he just held me. And in that moment, every wall that I built up for 20 something years at that point crumbled. And I had like the single teardrop going. I couldn't cry because I didn't really know how to cry at that point because I've been taught how to not cry. But it was the most profound moment. And he loved me and he, he let me know it was okay and that I was worthy and that I was capable and that he believed that I was. He, he knew me and saw me even though he didn't know me. Mm -hmm. And he rests in peace now. Johnny K, he was a beautiful man. I talk about him. I talk about this moment in the book and the effect it had. I mean, it, it changed my life. It changed the absolute course of my life. He showed me not only how to be sober, how to be a man. One day, he, and it turns out he lived three doors away from me. So I would just wake up in the morning and put on some fucking slippers and walk to his house and sit in his, sit in his you know, kitchen with his wife and her crazy Cuban father and his two kids who were like, call me Uncle Noah. That like very instantly, I was Uncle Noah. You know, I just had breakfast with them every single morning and Johnny and I would drive around. He had gas stations. So we both strapped guns to our ankles. We'd go collect the money from his gas stations, which were in really bad neighborhoods. We would just drive for, you know, six to eight hours and just talk about life. He'd show me how to be man. One day he goes, all right, I'm going to come pick you up. I want to see your apartment. He walks in. He goes, the fuck is this mess? He's like, what the fuck is going on in your apartment? Because you bring girls back here? I go, yeah. He goes, it's a shithole. Clean your fucking apartment. Make your bed. He looks at me. He goes, I'll never forget. He goes, messy bed, messy head. Mm. And I will like never forget that. So every morning I make my bed. Mm -hmm. And I keep my apartment as okay. But I know when it's not okay. I know like, like 
Like Johnny would tell me to clean my apartment today. It does never get like it was when I was like young and I didn't give a shit, but it's still like, it's a little too messy. And I'm like, I like to keep it clean. So that was the person that turned everything around in my life. I could sit here and talk to you for hours, which we're going to have to have you back because literally I can sit here and talk to you for hours. I mean, I don't even know what else to say. There's so many things that we didn't touch on. Um, I do want to tell you though, that I think that the most important thing that I have heard from you during this time is seeing the human within each one of us, like literally to the core of who we are, seeing the human within each one of us. And I can't thank you enough for that. I see you, Sarah. Well, I see you, Noah. Thank you. I know you do. It's, um, you've helped me during this time, which wasn't expecting that. (laughs) Wasn't expecting that. (laughs) Emotional emotional can opener, I'm telling you. (laughs) Well, and you know what's really cool? I think that the most important thing, too, is... And and I speak about this all the time, which I'm sure you do as well. And yeah, I was just talking to my niece about this this morning. You never know the person that is going to impact you on this day. And we need to be open and aware of those conversations and those people. And we need to be able to see those people, the person, you know, putting groceries in our bag or whatever, whomever it is, the mailman, the person who's picking up our garbage, the person who, you know, our doctor, our nurse, whoever it is, and just understand that we all can have an impact on one another and you're doing it. You're doing it. Thank you. That's high praise from you. Thank you. Will you come back? Okay. Okay. But, but, but only not until you read my book. Yeah. Well, and I totally will. I promise you, I will. Have you read my book? No, I didn't know you had a book. Yes, dude. Is it Red Shoe Living? <laughs> no. So I didn't, I didn't get a copy of that. I have that even at home. This isn't even my space. No, okay. no, that's not my book. My book is all about nature healing. It's called Walk Through This, Harness the Healing Power of Nature and Travel the Road to Forgiveness, which is why I have the Sounds first fucking good. It is. There you it's go. Like, it's a great there you book. Go. So, uh, yeah. So you know what? Here's you, what we're going to do. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to read each other's book. Yeah, and then yeah. we're going to come back on and have a conversation okay. about that. How is that? Okay. Sounds that will good. be that will be our follow up podcast. You got my you got my book though emailed to you. Um, she did not mail it to me yet, but that's okay. I'll get it. No. I'll, I'll go on she, it. It's all good. Okay. All right. I'll <laughs> okay. I'll get yours as well. I have not gotten. I'll just yet, I'll just 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 email Courtney. She'll send it to you. I will. It's I fine. definitely will. Just I do that. Just do. do I'm my girl, Courtney. She's the best. I definitely will. I am so stoked to have you on. So thank you. Um, and we, we will pleasure. have a follow up. We will have, you know, here's the, thing that's, here's the thing that that's really interesting about, you know, being an author and all of the things is that it's so easy for us to talk about the book, but truly I also want to talk about the person who wrote the book. Like I want to talk to the yeah. person, you know what I mean? Like I want to talk to that person. Well, that's my book is just <laughs> basically my life. Yeah, it's well, all, it's, all, it's all, it's all, it's all, it's all my stories and my adventures and all the people I met and how they affected me and what they taught me. That's all it is. Yeah, it's yeah. nothing, nothing beyond that. It's nothing beyond my mentors and teachers and friends. Well, and mine's actually mine is that the intro and the preface is more like scientific nature healing and and because I did all of my healing in nature and um, mm-hmm. 
And it's also about how I traveled that road to forgiveness. And, you know, what's fascinating is uh, I always talk about healing, transformation, whatever you want to call it. Like it's, it's a daily practice. It's like you, before we ever started, you said you wake up every morning and, and you have this prayer to God, right? Like help me today to, to what was it that you said? Give it, give it to Let me. Let me help people. Let me help people. Let yeah. me help people. <clears throat> yep. And, um, and for me, it's a practice of forgiveness every day too. And just simply having this conversation with you gave me that another level of forgiveness for different things within my past. And it's, it's, it's such a beautiful thing. Like humans beautiful. are beautiful freaking things. Like we are beautiful yes. people. All we of are. Us. So we yeah. have the capacity for great love. We also have the capacity for great evil. So it's up to yeah. us. And especially in this time when people are being like, evil and hatred because they understand and they're confused and they're basically just scared. And that's all it is. It's just fear that's running everything that it's up to us to be, to really be overly kind and loving and and joyous and free. I agree. Counteract, counteract that. I look forward to this follow-up conversation, my friend. I do as well. Thank you. All right. You I will talk to you soon. Thank you. All right. I'm going to find you on Instagram too. I didn't do this yet. Um, Where can people find you? People can find me. Uh, most the easiest way to get a hold of me and to find me is on Instagram at Noah Shaw twenty six N O A S H A W two six. I answer all of my DMs. I get a lot, and I answer all of them. I have a website noahshaw.com, and I have a book Stop Thinking Thoughts That Scare You on Amazon. Um, and DM me if you can't afford it, even the Kindle version, and I will email it to you. And I promise that. Yeah. Um, I send out a lot of them for people that are just really down on their luck and can't afford it. So mm-hmm. even though the Kindle's like $3 or something like that, but sometimes $3 is a different. So, yeah, but yeah. Instagram is the place I like to play the most. It's my favorite play box. You're incredible. Sandbox. You. You're awesome. Thank you. All right. We'll be All in right. touch. We will be in touch. All right. I look forward to, I think we just became best friends. We did become best friends. <laughs> okay, cool. <laughs> Coming up, Park City. Staying in your guest Park room. Park coming up. <laughs> yeah. All right. Peace, Sarah. Have Thank a great you. day. You too. Later. Friends, thank you for listening to the Live Boldly podcast. I am grateful to have you here, and I would love to invite you over to sarahsheltoncrans.com to grab my free seven steps to a joy-filled life. I share these seven steps from my own heart, soul, and experience These steps transformed my own life from victim to survivor. Also, please, let's all be ripple effective change in today's world. I ask of you to please share this podcast with others that may need to be inspired or who need to hear from others going through where they are right now. To grow this podcast, please leave an iTunes review, go to my Instagram or Facebook page, and let me know what you think. I love hearing from each and one of you I love sharing your thoughts, messages, and inspiring words. Because we are not alone in this world, friends. Let's keep the ripple moving. It begins with each one of us. I love you and have a great remainder of your day. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. 
With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.